so many young people are caregivers. And I wanted to put a face to that and kind of rewrite the narrative of what is a caregiver. And I realized how much more powerful we are when we're all together and we can talk about these experiences. We can share resources. We can vent. We can cry. We can laugh. Just a group of people who really understand what you're going through is so powerful to help cope with all stages of grief. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Connecting ALS. I am your host, Jeremy Holden. I once asked a caregiver what advice they would give to someone who was just starting their ALS journey. Allow yourself to grieve the future that you had planned, she told me, because it is going to be different, but also try to work through that grief so you can enjoy the time that you do have. You don't know how much time you're going to have. It might be months, it might be years, it might be decades. So take a moment and find something every day you can enjoy. I think about that advice a lot, and I'm reminded of it today because this week we are diving deep into grief, what we grieve, how we grieve, and when it's time to look for support in our grief journey. And perhaps most importantly, are we ever done with grief? Joining me to do so this week is my guest co-host, Sarah Trott. Sarah is a multimedia influencer, a podcast host, an associate editor at caregiving.com, and a former guest on this show who cultivates a caregiving community on Facebook. You may even know her from her appearance on The Bachelor. When Sarah dropped by Connecting ALS in April 2021, she talked about her experience as a caregiver for her father and her work trying to support and connect young caregivers like herself around the country. Well, Sarah's process of grieving the loss of her father began in October. Sarah, thanks so much for being with us this week. Yeah, thank you. It's it's an honor to be here. Yeah, when you were last on Connecting ALS, you shared your story as a caregiver for your father, and that was just a few months ago. Sadly, you lost your father in October, and as our listeners are all too well aware with ALS, a lot can change in just a few short months. Yeah. So the last time I was on the podcast was April, and so much happened from April to October, and people familiar with ALS know how difficult it can be, the anticipatory grief, what to do in the moments when the end is nearing and it's happening. And then what do you do in the hours, days, weeks, months after that has happened? So it's been an up and down journey for me and my family, but I'm learning to understand grief and navigate these next chapters. And it's been an up and down process for sure. Well, Sarah, you, you mentioned the the hows. Well, what are the hows? What are some of the ways in those days, weeks, and months? Where did you turn? What what did you do to kind of navigate your own grief journey? For me, what worked best was to not isolate myself. So fortunately, in the weeks and months uh, before my dad's passing, I had created a caregiver community, a Facebook group, a support group, and also started virtual Zoom uh, weekly meetups with other young female caregivers. And I used those resources and all of those tools in my toolkit, all of the people that I leaned on before my dad's passing after that time to explain how I was feeling and to share how I was feeling, to cry, to vent, and to receive that support. So fortunately, I had those things in place. And also, I found it really helpful to 
be with other people impacted by ALS. So just a couple of weeks after my dad passed, I went with Hope Loves Company to a retreat in the Santa Cruz Mountains in California outside of San Francisco and was in nature and was a camp counselor for young kids who are impacted by ALS. And I found that to be a spiritual moment, I guess, to feel really in in tune with my dad and to sit with the grief and to feel the grief, to to cry, to laugh, to share experiences, share advice with other people impacted by ALS. And in that time after his passing, it was so fresh. But I really felt in touch with my dad because we would, when I was younger, you know, I would go on father-daughter camping trips with him. We would be in the mountains together. We would, you know, be camping or in cabins. And just being in that environment was a really good way to, to feel that immense loss, but to also honor him and and feel hope in the future of moving forward and making the grief not feel so enormous to make it feel like it's part of me, but I can also manage it. That's incredible. And it's amazing to me to think that in that moment, talk to me a little bit about the decision to go into that experience, into that environment as a counselor, as someone who was now, um, you're going through this grieving process. How did you come to the determination that you wanted to really serve others who are going through a similar process? As opposed to, you know, being the recipient, you know, that's, it's a selfless act. So talk to me a little bit about how you, how you got there. I feel like that experience, you know, it kind of all fell into place with this really real life experience that I've had. I never really felt ready to be a spokeswoman for ALS or to be a a camp counselor that, you know, I have all the answers and, you know, let me, uh, you know, help others. You know, it kind of, I think for a lot of people that are in this experience, it's such a niche community almost that it it just felt so natural to be able to share my experience and hopefully help others. Just to talk about the really real life crappy things that we experience with ALS yeah. and to hopefully inspire and encourage other young young people who are dealing with this because it's really hard, you know, me dealing with grief really fresh or, you know, a young person, maybe a middle schooler or a high schooler whose mom or dad has ALS and just how difficult that experience must be and how one weekend away can really make such a difference being with other people who have that shared lived experience. So you have this shared lived experience in nature, face-to-face with people who are different steps on the journey of grief, but you also, I know you're very active in, and you talked about some of the virtual communities that you cultivate, the online communities. It strikes me that community is more than just the people that I can see when I look out my window or when I'm driving down the street. And I think you do a good job in, in your writing and in so much of your work of, of thinking bigger about community and how we can build communities in a variety of different ways. Yeah, I think building community in the virtual world is a really important uh, way to cope with grief, anticipatory grief, or dealing with loss. I think it's not the norm to have somebody in your actual community, you know, down the street, you know, in your actual neighborhood who may also be impacted by ALS. 
you know, when in your city, in your larger city, maybe you know of a couple other people, depending on where you live. If you're in a small town, you might not have anybody in your community to be a resource, somebody who understands what ALS is or can offer that help. So I think finding and cultivating community online is really powerful and was something that I felt called to do, especially after my experience on The Bachelor. I received hundreds, if not maybe thousands of messages from other mostly young women who were caregivers for a mom or dad or a grandparent with ALS or were just caregivers in general uh, with COVID or other neurological diseases, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's. So many young people are caregivers. And I wanted to put a face to that and kind of rewrite the narrative of what is a caregiver. Because a lot of young people think a caregiver is somebody who shows up in blue scrubs and cares for your grandparent. But really there are thousands of young caregivers who are people just like me and a lot of the other people in my caregiver community who are young. They have a lot going on in their life. They're maybe just starting school, starting first jobs. And all of a sudden, this mountainous thing of ALS or caregiving enters their life. And and what do they do? Do they put things on pause? Do you take that job away from your family? Do you study abroad? You know, dating, all of these different things that you're dealing with as a young person, I found really challenging while balancing family and caregiving. But when I put that all together and put everybody together in a group, a Facebook group, and now these virtual Zoom groups, I realized how much more powerful we are when we're all together and we can talk about these experiences. We can share resources. We can vent. We can cry. We can laugh. Um, Just a group of people who really understand what you're going through is so powerful to help cope with all stages of grief. Sarah, as we're sitting here talking about community and, you know, the ways that you've been able to build virtual community and, you know, some of the conversations that you've been able to have, how do the conversations that you've had around grief in the past few months, what's it, how do you balance the focus on, on this idea that we have of grief as something to get through as opposed to is grief something that we just, that it stays with us and it can lessen over time, it can ebb and it flow. What's your perspective on that several months into this process? Yeah, I'm realizing grief is not a one-size-fits-all kind of thing. I mean, everybody has a different way of coping and managing with grief. Sometimes it's easier to just remove everything that reminds you of the person that you know you were caring for or to block that out. And I've found quite the opposite to, you know, think about everything that I've been through and to really understand the magnitude of it and to give myself grace and time to heal and to, for me, it helps to be around the things that remind me of my dad and it can be painful, but it's a way to recognize that this, you know, momentous life event happened that my dad passed away and that, you know, to cry randomly is okay to, to not cry is okay. And it does get easier with time. I feel like that's something we've heard over and over, you know, oh, just give it time, give it time. But it is true, you know, time does help heal. And to be around people who are supportive, to listen to your body and to listen to your emotions of if you're just feeling like, hey, I need to 
spend some extra time in bed today and drink some warm tea and, you know, be cozy and lazy, that's okay. And other days it's going to be easier. Other days I'm able to talk about my experience, about my dad, to be really strong and to be really passionate about all of these things. And other days I was on my weekly caregiver Zoom call and I just burst out crying and I couldn't stop. It was just uncontrollable tears because we were just talking about, you know, with the other girls who still have their parents day-to-day mundane things about living with ALS. And it just, all the floodgates opened and it reminded me of how painful that time was, that anticipatory grief, being his caregiver and leading up to his passing. And it's almost surreal when all of that just evaporates overnight, that life somehow moves forward, even if you're not ready. And you think you could be ready because you've been dealing with ALS for years and years, but then finally when it happens, and, and that loss happens, it's surreal to see, you know, holidays and birthdays, a lot of new firsts without your loved one can feel really painful. Um, I remember the day my dad passed, it, he passed in the morning and after, you know, we took care of everything with hospice and all of the procedural things uh, when a loved one dies, my family was kind of like, now what? what do we do? It was like 2 p.m. on a Friday. And we decided to go to our favorite Mexican restaurant by the ocean. We got margaritas and tacos and it was a surreal moment, but we just toasted and cheers to my dad. And as our server came to our table, I couldn't even believe like this server has no idea what we're doing here. You know, like my dad, her husband, passed away this morning. How, what a weird moment. And all these people are just walking around living their lives. And it was just such a weird moment. And, and then the same with holidays, Christmas, you know, Valentine's Day around the corner, all these things that are coming up. It's definitely going to feel surreal, but time helps for sure. You said that so beautifully about give yourself grace and time. That's that's going to stay with me. And, and Sarah, I just want to thank you for gracing us with your time this week. Um, any other closing thoughts before we let you go about all the important things you're doing? Uh, I would just like to say if anybody listening to this wants to join my caregiver community, uh, you can find it on Facebook. It's called Sarah's Caregiver Community. We have more than 900 active members on that group. It's a really great channel to get dialed into. And I also have weekly Zoom uh, caregiver chats, uh, mostly young women in their 20s and 30s who are caring for parents. And we would love to have new faces. So feel free to join us and reach out to me uh, directly. I can have my info in the show notes and um, would love to get connected with anyone. Yeah, and we will absolutely share that information in the show notes and encourage folks to to go back and listen to Sarah's earlier uh, appearance on the show where she talked about her experience as a caregiver. Uh, Sarah, thanks so much for your time this week. Thank you. Well, I had an opportunity to talk earlier this week with Joe Carolyn Chambers, a grief counselor with the ALS Association, to get her perspective on the grief journey, some tips on dealing with grief, and her own grief journey. Get your tissues ready. Let's hear from Joe Carolyn now. Well, Joe Carolyn, thank you so much for your time this week and for being with us here on Connecting ALS. 
Oh, you're so very welcome. It's my privilege. Yeah, well, you know, talking about, you know, I think a heavy topic this week, and, and you're obviously the perfect person to have on. Well, I say obviously because I know, but um, before we dig into it all, can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got into grief counseling? Sure, I'd be happy to. So primarily my career has been, for the most part, in the hospice world. But I will tell you, a lot of people, when I tell them I've spent most of my career in the hospice world, honestly take a deep breath and really don't know how to follow that question up because death is a really difficult thing to talk about for most people. But it has obviously been my privilege and my honor to work in that field, and I would not have done it any other way. So part of my responsibility in the arena of the hospice world was to also do bereavement counseling and lead support groups. I prefer to call them connect groups because I think that's what happens is we connect with other people who are going through something similar. Yeah. And so I had the privilege of being able to do that in Kansas and Texas, also here in Oklahoma. Further, I loved the opportunity that I had both here in Oklahoma and in Texas to be on the ground floor of doing a children's bereavement camp, which actually was more of a children and family bereavement camp. So quite an awesome experience to be around little ones who are sharing their stories. Like I was on a hike with my dad and he went to take a picture of us and he stepped off the mountain and how that affects that little baby. So it has been truly a remarkable privilege to be a part of people's stories and their journeys. As you know, we also lost our 17-year-old daughter. It will be 18 years ago. Grief is a lifetime journey. And most recently, you probably don't know this, we lost our granddaughter at Christmas time. So, Wow. I did not know that. And I'm, 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 I'm terribly sorry to hear that. Um, how has your personal experiences with loss and with grief, how does that inform the work that you do with others, as you said, with their journey through grief? And the, as you, I think you said it's a lifetime process. Right. I think first and foremost, what I have learned is there is no substitute for being present and in most cases, keeping your mouth shut, being there, being supportive. I feel like the experiences that we have had, my husband and I, as well as other family have had, provide you with a sense of strength and knowledge of what to do, what not to do, what to say, what not to say. I want to get into the what to do, what not to do, what to, to say and what not to say. Um, but I'm curious, as someone who has spent so much time and given so much of yourself helping other people go through the grieving process, um, 
who does the grief counselor turn to? Mm. You know, that's a, that's a great question. And I would say first and foremost, for me personally, that would be um, our faith. I would say secondly, having trusted friends slash family whom you can scream to, cry to, you know, just whatever that might look like, and then know, safely know that they're not going to be calling to put you in the funny farm, right? Yeah. So we've talked about grief, and I think grief is often thought about in the hospice setting and in the setting of of having lost somebody that we love, that we care about. But I, I think about this in terms of ALS, which has been described as a disease that slowly takes away everything. And so there's this sense of loss throughout the ALS journey. How does that change the dynamic or change the perspective of these little griefs along the way. And I don't say little griefs to, to diminish it, but you know, there's, we talk about the stages of grief and it, it, it strikes me that during the ALS journey, there's stages of loss that have grief attached to them. So I'm going to kind of put a little bit of a different spin on that question, Jeremy. Hmm. And I want to say, you know, a lot of people do when they're initially diagnosed with ALS and and rightfully so, and along throughout the whole ALS journey, it does take a lot of things away. All right. But what I want to say is it does not define who you are. ALS doesn't define who you are or what you are to your family, to your friends, to your loved ones. And I think that is so important to remember. It also does not take away hope. I I guess I would like to suggest that we redefine and reframe what ALS can do and what it absolutely cannot do. And we do that by redefining what hope is. So how do you do that? You do that by listening to the patient and their family and help them not only accept their losses and their limitations, but also help them transform the experience into something that for them is livable and bearable, knowing that that will be different for everyone. So the focus becomes not necessarily on what was or what I can't do, but what can still be. And that doesn't mean that we're like in there you know, saying, oh gosh, everything's going to be fine and telling them that, you know, they can be better or things are going to get better, but more so that they're still valuable, that they're still important. They still have something to contribute. They're still active participants in their lives. Certainly these losses, as you were talking about, 
loss of mobility, loss of potentially speech, loss of work, loss of hopes and dreams, all of those things, those are going to be unending through this journey. And it's important to be honest about that. But I love the idea of redefining with each individual person, what does hope look, for, look like for you? And focusing on that. So that gives rise to the question of the how. So how do you allow yourself to grieve a loss, whether it's the loss of time, the, the loss of a future that you had planned, or as you mentioned, a, a loss of a mobility or a motor function, and yet still stay present in the future um, and being present for, for your loved ones? Right. So I think that there's a couple of different things that I would highlight. First and foremost, be present. There is no substitute for showing up and being there. You don't even have to say anything, just be present. I think it's important to not only allow, but to encourage what I call the hard conversations, okay? So for example, what does this look like for you if you're no longer able to speak? Or in the case of one of my gentlemen who said to me, when I can no longer eat, you know, that's kind of my benchmark. So what does it look like for you? So those hard questions and being willing to broach them, if you will, even when it's hard and painful. I think there's something that also happens when you have a terminal disease, when you have ALS, and that is it's very normal for an elephant to enter the room. And I don't know if you know what I mean by that, but that is those unspoken thoughts and feelings that nobody has the guts if you will, to talk about, right? Yeah. Um, so I think that's um, super important. In hospice work, we have a philosophy that encourages what we call a, quote, good death, end of quote. And I know to most people, that probably sounds like a huge dichotomy of terms, but what that means is for people to really have and utilize the opportunity to be able to say thank you to each other, to be able to ask each other forgiveness, to be able to say to each other, I love you. I think that is probably one of the most important things that we can ever do for those that we love. We need to accept the fact that there are differences in grieving experiences. You know, what one person may feel at one point in time may not be what the other one is feeling. We need to know that's okay. Expect that you're going to have to make some changes and adjust your expectations. And bottom line, Take a deep breath. 
You mentioned that grief is a lifetime journey. How does that manifest itself? Or rather, how do you allow it to be part of a lifelong journey and maybe avoid getting stuck in it? Or is that is that even the right way to think about it? Sure, I think so. So I personally believe that grief is a lifelong journey. And for so many years, probably prior Oh, I'm going to date myself by saying this, but I would say probably 15 to 20 years ago, most people were familiar with, and most people still are, with Kubler-Ross's five stages of grief. And you have these five stages of grief and shock, anger, denial, you know, blah, 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 blah. And the perception was that you walk through this one and then you go to the next one and and so on and so forth. And in reality, that's not ever what she wanted people to think, but that's how people interpreted it. The reality is that goes back and forth all the time. I think that grief becomes less painful over a period of time. But I also do believe that it is always something that is close to our heart. So how do you get help for grieving, right? There's a lot of different options, resources, bereavement groups, spiritual leaders, reading materials, again, that trusted friend, your confidant. Everyone deals with it differently. Um, A lot of people will turn to social media, and that's awesome. But I also want to say a word of caution about that, because sometimes that doesn't necessarily provide everyone with the best advice or information. So is the idea that this concept that you referenced, the stages of grief, is it's not, uh, you're not trying to get to a finish line and now this is behind you? Nope. No. I think that finish line is probably when you um, see that person again. So you mentioned earlier the support groups, or you call them connection groups, which which I really love that concept, and other opportunities to seek counseling for grief. But what are the signals that it's time to talk to somebody uh, to get support through through the process of, of grieving? Right. I think it's important to realize that everybody does grieve differently. Okay. There's probably a fine line when people internally realize that they are struggling and need help. And what that may look like is going to be entirely different for each individual, okay? Some people are gonna wanna process that on their own. Some people are gonna want to, you know, talk to others. But in answer to your question, When is it time to perhaps seek some additional help? And I would say that the answer to that question is when you wake up in the morning and you don't feel like you can function or you are so overwhelmed by what we would call daily tasks that you can't do them. I think that when you can't sleep, I mean, and everybody has their barometer of what sleep looks like for them. Some people sleep too hours, some sleep, you know, do you sleep too much? Do you 
sleep patterns are changed. Let's just put it that way. Okay. Yeah. When eating patterns are changed, when you lose complete interest in anything and everything that you used to enjoy, then that's, those are kind of some triggers, I think, that maybe some professional help is definitely warranted. That doesn't mean that it's going to be professional help for the rest of your life. It just means maybe you need somebody to help you get from point A to point B. Well, you and I are having this conversation, um, you know, just a couple of weeks before Valentine's Day, um, the year end holidays, the holiday season, as, as we often refer to them are kind of, they're in the rear view mirror, but no, not so far away. And I think about that in the context of, of your, your observation that, that grief is a, is a lifetime journey. Are some of these, these touchstone holidays, potential triggers to go into one of those other stages of grief that maybe we thought that someone thought they had, had passed through? Yes. Yes. The answer would be very simply, yes. You know, holidays after the loss of a loved one, obviously, you know, they take on a different meaning. And I think that most of us anticipate that Thanksgiving or Christmas or your birthday or your loved one's birthday or an anniversary are going to be triggers, right? But there's some other holidays that are a little bit more ambiguous. And Valentine's Day happens to be one of those. Partially because, you know, there's this kind of gearing up for the Christmas and Thanksgiving holidays. And we made it through that. And then all of a sudden, there's this holiday that paradoxically is focused on love. And ever since we were a child, you know, we've had the class parties and the candy hearts and and all of that. And whether you celebrate that as an adult or not, just by the mere fact that you walk into a grocery store and you're met with aisles of flowers and boxes of candy, that just, it is just like a heart of elephants coming back and it's it can be a real gut punch and i feel like a lot of people don't anticipate that and so by sharing and talking about it ahead of time it kind of prepares us if you will to a little tiny bit you know last night we had one of our grief groups and um two individuals who lost their spouse before Christmas. And I brought this very subject up and it was very obvious to me that neither one of them had thought about it. And so we talked a little bit about, you know, how did they in particular, you know, used to, if you want to say celebrate or recognize the day and and neither one of them really, you know, it really wasn't that particular a big thing. However, the minute I said the word Valentine's Day, it was almost like in their body language and in their expression, this look of, oh my gosh, terrifying. 
right? Yeah. So here's what we talked about. We talked about ways to maybe embrace, if you will, which kind of sounds again like a dichotomy, but ways to embrace that day. And, and I said, first and foremost, we have to acknowledge it. And secondly, decide on how do I this year want to deal with it? Then share that with your family, with your friends. Maybe start a new tradition. Do something for, you know, someone else. Maybe it's just going through the line at Starbucks and telling the clerk that waits on you that you want to buy a cup of coffee for the person behind you. And you do that because that's your way of buying it for your loved one. You know, whatever that might look like. But as we were talking last night, the gentleman shared with me that he's enrolled in an online cooking class. And so I was super excited about that because his wife was a real big baker and all of that. And so I kind of jokingly said, I said, well, you know what? Why don't you call your girls and your grandkids and have them all come over on Valentine's Day and you guys fix one of your wife's favorite recipes. And you know what? He lit up like a light bulb. Hmm. That's great. And he said, you know what? She made the very best chocolate chip cookies. I think I will call them and see if we can schedule a day that'll work and a time and we'll all make cookies and then we'll just pick now. Well, Joe Carolyn, you've mentioned a couple times the value of sharing where you are and, and just being open. And we talked about that elephant that creeps into the room every once in a while. And I'm, I'm curious if you've seen a, ch- a shift in the culture about just openness to having these conversations relative to when, when you started your career is like, even if we have a ways to go in terms of having these conversations more regularly and, and with more people, is it getting better? I would say, Jeremy, that it certainly is. I think more people are open to talking about it. You know, is it like on their top 10 list of things to do? Probably not. But I do think that we as a society have become more, I hate to use the word comfortable, but maybe accepting of the fact that death is a part of life. And how we choose, and I underline and put in word in big bold letters, the word choose, how we choose to deal with that is so important, not only to our loved ones, but to our family, etc. And I and I will share this with you. I had a lady just a couple of days ago that she is a caretaker for her father who has ALS and she also has children in her home, okay? So kind of that sandwich generation, right? And she and I had this conversation and again, part of my job is to help people kind of reframe things because initially she was like, I just don't want my kids to have to experience 
how difficult this might be. And I said to her, let's look at this a little bit different. This is an opportunity for your children to learn about life in the big picture and for them to be able to share not only what is going on with you, but also is going on with their grandparents. And it also provides them the opportunity to understand that when the situations are difficult, this is how we as a family choose to deal with it. And I said, you may want to even go as far as thinking that this is a gift from your parents, not only to you, but to your children, because they are learning how to do this and do it well and do it together as a family. Well, Joe Carolyn, you're such a remarkable person and just been so great having you on and uh, just, you know, really inspired by the work that you do and, and, and the grace that you bring to it. So um, thank you so much for spending a little bit of time with us this week. And, uh, and I'm, I know listeners are going to get a lot out of it. Thank you. It was certainly my pleasure. Well, I want to thank our guests again this week, Sarah Trott and Joe Carolyn Chambers. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend. And while you're at it, rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts. It is a great way for us to connect with even more listeners. Our production partner for this series is Citizen Race Car. Post-production by Garrett Tiedemann. Production management by Gabriella Montekin, supervised by David Hoffman. That is going to do it for this week's episode. Hope you enjoyed it. Thanks for tuning in. We will connect with you again soon. Bye.